Hello and welcome to the second episode of the pre-conference podcast. Um, this is Veronica de Michelis. And this is Ekaterina Howard. And today we'll be talking about the sessions taking place on Friday and um, interviewing the speakers about their presentations that we look forward to the most. So which presentation do you look forward to the most, Katerina? I'm really looking forward to the brave new world of career possibilities for linguists. It is hard to choose just one, so I'll just go with this one. Yes. How about you? It is very hot. I think it's going to be one of those days where I wish I could be in several places at once. If I had to pick one, I think I would vote for going to Elizabeth Adams' session on better online searches. (gasps) I forgot about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So SLD members, if you would like to join us in reviewing the sessions and sharing all the knowledge you receive, that would be awesome. Please email us if you would like to volunteer as a reviewer. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Adams, and I'm looking forward to presenting a short session at the ATA conference in New Orleans on how to get the most out of your online searches. It's called Better Online Searches. It's all in your head. Thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Before we start, could you say a few words about your background and your experience? Yes. So I have been translating since 1998, so that's 20 years. And it doesn't feel like 20 years, but sometimes it does. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. And the internet has changed a lot in those 20 years, just to the point of being unrecognizable. And that's something I've always followed and kept an eye on is what is available out there for free research and what is not available for us as translators who don't have, you know, we don't have subscriptions or university credentials a lot of the time. And um, yeah, so it's our Swiss army knife and I've been watching it develop. And I just feel like I would like to have a structured conversation with other translators about what that means for us and how we can get the most out of it. This is a very um, valuable discussion and a very interesting topic. So to name a few, what are the most common problems with searching for information online? Do you know what I keep coming back to when I think about that? I have so much, you know what, Veronica, one of my problems I'm having writing out my presentation is that there's so much to say, but I don't want to use up my hour. Do you know what I mean? I want to use up maybe 40 minutes and let people Mm -hmm. ask questions because I think that's where real learning happens when people can interact with what you tell them and actually ask questions and we can go over, well, what do you do if you have this kind of a problem? So I don't know how much theory to include and I'm trying to keep it to a minimum. One of the main problems we have with searching for information online is that we're not as good at it as we think we are. And I mean, all of us, myself included, that I think there's a tendency to treat Google like a slot machine where you can just um, like hit the return button and see what happens. Yeah. Right. And maybe I'll get lucky today, especially when you have a tight deadline. Right. You know, that that panicky feeling of I have exactly three minutes to find out what this term is. <laughs> yeah. My target is when it all falls apart. And, you know, and the idea of like going to the library, you know, I mean, that's just from another lifetime. Yeah. So I think the first problem is that we assume we are more competent than we are. But that's actually easy enough to surmount because all you have to do is, you know, say, hey, I'm going to do this but I'm not a Jedi, so I'm going to be careful. You know, so I think that these problems that we have are not insurmountable. They're just, you have to recognize 
your own limitations. Um, yeah. And I think all of, I, this is not doesn't apply to all of us, but I think a lot of us have a lot of noise in the search results, depending on what areas you translate in. You know, if you're if you do highly technical or legal or, or I don't know, maybe medical, maybe that's not such a factor. But when I've done, say, financial translations or anything having to do with finance, politics, there's just a lot of noise when you do searches for terms in Google. You get a lot of noise back. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how to avoid that and how to target your results to avoid the, the random stuff you don't need. Well, and then I guess just one, it's not a problem, but it's a fact. It's a fact of life that I guess is a, we just have to be aware of it, is that the internet is, um, I looked it up, the internet is actually 700 times larger than it was when I started translating 20 years ago. It's 700 times larger than it was. So it's almost like you're swimming in a much deeper ocean when you go to look for information. So it's, it's frustrating because you know, right? You know that the information's out there, and if you can't find it, you think, okay, this is my fault. I can't find this because it's definitely out there. Whereas when I started in 1998, there was a good chance that it just wasn't online. What you needed had not been digitized and put online. And that's just not true anymore, I think, for most people. Yeah. So when did you, I mean, when did you guys start translating? Do you remember the internet back when it was not as useful? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I started um, 18 years ago. This is probably why I, as, as you mentioned, struggle just with a sheer scope and amount of information you get back when you search for something online now you forget to rely on paper sources as much mm -hmm. yes because they're not updated as frequently or it just takes longer time than to type something in the search field so uh, i feel i'm very excited about your session because i can see um, definite room for improvement <laughs> on my part do you know what i actually i know a translator who um gosh he's probably 80 something and he sold part of his library to me of paper resources when he retired last year. Wow. And I bought them not because I anticipated using them, but because I just felt like it was something worth having. Yeah, yeah. And I asked him, do you remember? I mean, obviously he remembers, but I said, what was it like before the internet? Because I feel like if I didn't have access to Google, I don't think I could do my job. You know, if I didn't have the internet, I don't think I could do my job. Not every day, but most days. And he said, you really had to work for a client that was willing to do the digging for you. And um, you usually worked in-house. And they would have the subscriptions and the books, and you would just use that. And, you know, you, that was it. Yeah, well, it's sort of like The Catcher in the Rye translation by Rice Kovalova. It's like there is no way she could know what burgers. I think burgers are mentioned at some point in like. There were no burgers in the USSR, so, you know, what can you do? Right. And she couldn't just jump online and look it up. Because now you could look at a picture, you could watch a YouTube video of somebody making a burger, you could look at recipes for burgers. Yeah. Right. right. So, it, yeah, it's radically, it has radically changed our job, our job description, right? We're supposed to be able to know all this stuff. Well, I'm going to be talking about um, using not just textual information, but like you just said, looking at pictures and or YouTube videos. Yes. Yay. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that's something that has been a game changer for me is, uh, is YouTube. Because you can, um, I mean, you, if you have a question about the terminology, instead of, instead of hitting, you know, hitting some keywords and hitting return to see how lucky you are today, you can watch 
you know, a tutorial about how this machinery works and you can actually see the part that you don't know what to call it. And if you get lucky, you know, maybe they give you that term in there, but you, you just get better context and you learn enough to be a smarter researcher. Yeah, no, the world before YouTube is not a world I want to go back to. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just cat videos. <laughs> I haven't seen a cat video in probably five years. Don't, <laughs> don't jinx me. <laughs> They've gone out of style. <laughs> I hardly ever go on YouTube for anything except work. Well, and cartoons for my kids, got to be honest here. Any crazy stories or just fascinating stories about research you have been doing that you, you like to share? I love that you asked that, and I'm going to answer it as quickly as I can because I would like to hear if you have any crazy stories because all of my crazy research stories, the ones that make good stories, are all involve when I went offline, you know, like going rogue and um, actually calling people. I actually called one time I had a – I was translating some materials for a horse breeder, uh, uh, just a, an operation that breeds really expensive horses in Russia. And I knew nothing about horses. This, and that's not how I got the job. I did not get the job because I knew a lot about horses. And I actually could not find what I needed. And I wasn't willing to just say, I can't find it. So I called a horse breeder. And the funny thing is, I don't remember what the term was now, but this was probably six or seven years ago. But I remember she was so nice. You know, the, she was like, yeah, I don't know what you're doing, but I'll totally help you. Yeah, so no, I mean, I feel like online research is not, doesn't make a good story, does it? It's, I mean, it's... It's just like brushing your teeth, exercising. It's not, it's a practice and it takes muscles that you have to exercise and they get stronger and you get better at it. But I don't feel like I have any super interesting stories. I mean, do you? Well, spectacular failures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have some of those. <laughs> um, I had a, a crazy, fascinating story happen to me recently as I was translating. I was doing a, a genealogical translation for a client who had Russian roots, but didn't know much about his family. And I was helping him um, not only translate the documents that he had in Russian, but also find out more about where his family is from, which took a lot of time. But I found out that his family lived six miles away from where my family is from. Oh, interesting. So, oh, fascinating. Yeah, so I, I so your ancestors were neighbors? Yes, they were neighbors. How fascinating. But he found you. Over the internet, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. See? Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a crooked reflection of the real world. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Great. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for finding time to join us. We really look forward to your session at the conference. Yeah, and I look forward to you guys' sessions. I looked them up and we don't conflict with each other. So yeah, I will be there. I will be there taking notes and raising my hand. <laughs> I'm Larry Bogoslaw. I've been an ATA member for about 20 years. I have a graduate degree in Slavic languages and literatures. I specialized in Russian literature, and I have been a professional translator uh, since about the mid-90s. And I got certified from Russian into English in 2005, and then Spanish into English in 2007. The name of the session is how to get tense, translating verb forms into and out of Slavic languages. So speaking about the verb forms, um, can you give us some examples of the particularly tricky ones? 
Yes, the examples I'll give are difficult forms to translate from English. Uh, one of the most notorious is the so-called sequence of tenses, where the rule is that uh, when you're narrating past events, you have to mark all of the verbs in the past, including reported speech. So, for example, she said she was tired, um, whereas in Russian you would, you know, she, you would say, well, that's that's a bad example, but um, but you would, but whatever whatever she said would be in the present tense because it was in the present tense when she said it. Um, English also has a rich set of modal auxiliaries, um, the type of thing like he might know, I would prefer, uh, she will reply. Um, and Russian uh, usually expresses those modalities either with an adverb, such as vazmorzno on znayet, you know, for he might know, or simply mark conditional or future tense to express would or will. And then there are a whole other set of difficult forms to translate into English. Uh, and that's why we're going to have uh, four different panelists uh, talking about those challenges from the point of view of different Slavic languages. So is the panel makeup finalist at this point? Yes, it is. And we will have Paul Gallagher, uh, who's a, a great resource, uh, talking about uh, verb forms in Russian and translating them into English. And I wanted to have a representation from at least one Eastern, one Western, and one Southern Slavic language. So for uh, for the other ones, um, we're going to have uh, Olga Shostachuk for Ukrainian, Christine Pavlovsky for, for Polish, and Emilia Balka for Bulgarian. That's wonderful. I already am looking forward to the session. Oh, me too. So if we're going from Russian into English, since you're a grader, I have to ask, would you say that errors in translating word tenses into English is one of the most common mistakes? I would say, in retrospect, it is a very common mistake. And I didn't notice it for at least the first five years uh, when I was grading. But after a while, I noticed that there were all these incorrect verb forms. And what we had in the error categories was to mark those as a grammatical mistake. But since they didn't violate any rules of grammar, but they actually changed the meaning of the sentence, I compared notes with graders in other languages. And it turns out that the majority of graders said that they regularly see mistakes in, in translating verb forms, both into and out of English. And these forms were so prevalent that we, uh, as the certification program in ATA, established a new category last year uh, just for verb tense errors. So the code is VT. And again, these are not grammatical errors uh, where a candidate conjugates a form incorrectly. For example, they wasn't here as opposed to they weren't here. That's a grammar error. But when the form that they choose conveys the wrong meaning, that is a verb tense error. For example, uh, when you have two past tense forms, when I arrived, she made tea. In English, that implies that the arrival comes first and then making tea comes after that. As opposed to when I arrived, she was making tea. That's, that's an aspect difference. That's it's very clear in Slavic languages, but you've got to you've got to do a little more um, phraseological work when conveying that in English. So that's a verb verb tense error. Thank you. In your bio on the conference website, it says that you are working on several group translation projects. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I'll I'll tell you about uh, two of those in particular. I just finished editing a collection of Russian articles and commentaries 
about Donald Trump. And most of those I, uh, I assisted in translating uh, from Russian into English over the last couple of years, since about uh, 2016. So uh, the book just came out from Eastview Press in Minneapolis, and it's called Russians on Trump. And I encourage you to check it out. You can look inside the book when you go to Eastview Press website, and you can see a lot about the background of the book. You can, uh, you can see excerpts from reviews. Um, so I'm very excited uh, that, that that has come out because there's uh, such, such a range of opinions and some chillingly prophetic commentary that, that came out back in 2015 and 2016 before Trump uh, was even elected. There were some Russian commentators and experts uh, who saw quite clearly what was happening in America. So I'm, uh, I'm very proud of the book, and, and I hope that a lot of people end up reading it. Now, the project that I've uh, actually been working on since before starting the Trump book is a collection of poems uh, that I've been uh, translating from Russian since about 2015. The author is Alexander Weitzman, uh, who's a, a Russian-born poet, um, born and grew up in Russia, who is now based in New York. That work has been quite painstaking, but it's worth it uh, because Weitzman is very well-versed in the um, in the Russian poetry tradition. He knows a lot about history, and he and he sneaks it, you know, everywhere. Uh, into his poems, you know, he has allusions to mythology. He has allusions to other literature uh, throughout the world. Um, so he he puts a lot of thought and complexity into his poems. And half of the fun is figuring out where the hidden treasures lie, and then and then deciding how to to convey that complexity in English. It's been a very enjoyable project, and Weitzman himself is a joy to work with. So it seems like a um a puzzle almost. It is. Yeah, it is a whole set of puzzles. That's fascinating. But aside from historical and cultural puzzles, uh, has there been any grammatical challenges in poetry translations work in your experience? You know, I had to uh, think hard about that question. I think that the grammatical difficulties sometimes come up in, um, in just trying to figure out what a sentence is about. Russian word order, for example, is a lot freer than English word order. So speaking about puzzles, you know, sometimes, you know, especially when, when one, one sentence or clause spreads across several lines of poetry, you have to go and, and uh, kind of make a diagram of it to figure out how the parts relate to each other. So that is one kind of puzzle. Um, but, the, but even more difficult than that, I, I believe, is uh, semantics. When certain words are chosen that not necessarily are difficult on their own to translate, but relations between words are difficult to translate. So for a poetry competition a couple of years ago, I decided to take on the challenge of a poem by Boris Slutsky, where he says that the world is divided into two commands, you know, using the word commande, and the two commands are smirna and volna. And Smyrna in a military context, you know, the relation, the relationship between Smyrna and Volna is, you know, comes out most strongly in the military context, where you're telling somebody to stand at attention, you say Smyrna, and when they can be at ease, you say Volna. But of course, as you might expect from a poet, Slutsky goes on through the rest of the poem 
to to create different semantic associations with with those two words. So that was that was the big master um, challenge in uh, in that translation. And so what I ended up doing for Kamanda was the world falls into two camps rather than commands or teams. I, I felt it was better to say camps because that brings up the military association. Those who stand at attention and those who are at ease. But in order to get the other shades of meaning, for example, in Smyrna, I decided to introduce other words you know, late, later in the poem to, to indicate meekness or, you know, be, or being subdued you know, to get that part of the word. So these semantic challenges, a grammatical challenge you know, forces you to think on the sentence level, but a semantic challenge in a good poem, it forces you to think on the cohesive level that, that goes uh, from beginning to end of the poem so that you get the whole message correct. You know, that sounds very complicated, <laughs> to be honest. It is, it is very complicated, but in a, in a fun way, just very, very absorbing. It's, a, it's an engaging pursuit for me. Right, and to circle back to the topic of the session, uh, do you have any advice for translators who would like to start working from a Slavic language into English? How can they finally grasp the subtleties of the English verb tenses? Well, it's two different questions, really. Um, but although I guess they both have the same answer. To work from a Slavic language into English, you, uh, you basically have to do a lot of reading in, in that language. And when it comes to verb tenses, especially narrative forms, nonfiction, fiction, and journalism. Journalism especially, even though it's, it's often not written as well as, um, as the literary genres, it, uh, it depends on narrative and it depends on being able to understand what, what happened first, what happened next, what, what level of causality uh, there is between them. So the more reading you do, the, the better off that you are. And I would, I would say that whether you're translating into English or whether you're translating out of English, if you are interested in checking your understanding of the meaning, like if you're not sure how a given form would be interpreted, then uh, for journalism, I highly recommend going to the BBC uh, World Service because they have, not completely, but they have a lot of the same uh, article coverage uh, presented in English and in Russian. And as far as I can tell, both languages are, are quite competently written. And for more complex stuff, not necessarily about verb tenses, but about terminology and diplomacy and, and other professional realms, the United Nations uh, has a wonderful database that's available absolutely for free, no paywall to get in. And I used both the BBC and the UN when I was preparing for the certification exam, and it was really helpful. Thank you so much for sharing the resources and for finding the time to answer our many questions. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, Katya. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Well, I look forward to the session. And thanks again for joining us. Hi, everyone. My name is Natalia Noland. I hold a PhD in linguistics and have been teaching English in institutions of higher education for 40 years now. Currently, in my capacity of a program coordinator, 
I'm offering translation and interpretation program, which I personally developed at Houston Community College. Additionally, I have performed governmental, technical, and literary translations and have served as an interpreter in technical, business, and governmental arenas. My strong belief is that translation and interpretation is a profession as much as engineering. One needs to get education to be a good translator and interpreter, hence this program. Hi everyone, my name is Veronica Demichelis. I am an ATA certified English to Russian translator, also working from Russian to English. In addition to that, I am a part-time faculty member of the Translation and Interpretation Program at Houston Community College and also serve as a professional development director for Houston Interpreters and Translators Association and a podmaster for the ATA Slavic Languages Division. The title of our session is Oh, the Places You'll Go, Implementing Quality Metrics in Translation Training Based on Industry Standards and Best Practice. So in the session description, you mention a skills evaluation rubric based on industry standards and best practices. Could you tell us a bit more about developing it and which industry standards and best practices have you looked into? and used to develop it. When we started offering translation and interpretation program, one of our goals was not just to teach how to translate and interpret, but to help our students become qualified specialists in this field of knowledge. We wanted them to match industry demands. Quality is extremely important to this profession. There are many translators and interpreters Unfortunately, not everyone is able to deliver the product of high quality. How can you tell your student if she or he has done well or not very well? And what or how they need to improve? So we thought of an objective rubric that would reflect competences a professional translator and interpreter should have. To add to that, in our program, we train bilingual students in all language pairs, so we don't limit admission to a particular language pair, and we teach them the skills needed to become professional translators and interpreters. But of course, in different cultures and different age groups, um, the understanding of the notion of quality can differ greatly, not to mention the fact that many newcomers to this profession believe that it is simply enough to transfer the literal meaning of words from one language to another. Therefore, our objective was to break it down to categories that all students can understand and give them plenty of opportunities to practice delivering work based on these quality standards. So when we started thinking about this rubric, we thought about the International Organization for Standardization, which develops and publishes international standards. ISO creates documents that provide requirements, specifications, guidelines, or characteristics that can be used consistently to ensure that materials, products, processes, and services are fit for their purpose and quality expected by industries. ISO standards are recognized all over the world, including the United States. So no matter where our students work, and after graduation from our college, they can go to any country, their performance will match industry requirements. And since we knew that the ISO standard looks at 
translation as a process or interpreting as a process and does not aspire to define quality or to measure it. We looked elsewhere too. Among others, we reviewed the grading rubric for the ATA certification exam and the TAUS quality metrics. For those of our listeners who are not familiar with TAUS, it's an independent international think tank and resource center that develops and shares knowledge, metrics, and data that helps all stakeholders in the translation industry to provide a better service. So based on all these uh, sources, we developed a rubric that helps us measure the quality of those competencies that we're teaching the students in our program. And was implementing this tool easy? Or did the students become confused at some point? <laughs> yeah, the implementation was not easy for the students. And they didn't like it at all at first. For the instructors, however, that was a blessing because it makes it very, very easy to assess the student. Yes, I agree that implementing this tool has not been easy. Um, <laughs> most students are used to their work being graded as to how many errors they made and uh, what percentage of uh, their homework is correct. And every cohort of students that we introduced it to said that this rubric is too strict, that we're demanding a level of quality that is unfair to beginners in this profession, that it's impossible to get an A. And to this, I like to say two things. First of all, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And second of all, would you agree to use services of a C-grade translator if you needed one in court or at the hospital? Becoming a professional translator or an interpreter is a lifelong commitment, and many newcomers to this profession don't understand it right away. And one needs to understand that this is not a words-in, words-out process. There are many criteria involved and uh, various skills to be mastered. Once the students uh, resigned, do you have to deal with the rubric? What kind of results did it bring? Well, currently, we actually think that the results are overwhelming. Uh, we have introduced the rubric at all levels, and it works Great, as now the students are fully aware of what the industry expects them to do. And when they start working, they fully implement what they have learned in our program. And their employers are actually quite happy with them. Yes, we do see a dramatic improvement in the quality of our students' translations after they get acquainted with the rubric. After receiving feedback the first few times, they pay closer attention to each of the multiple categories listed in the rubric that define a quality translation, and they learn to recognize various translation difficulties beyond the, I need to look up this word in a dictionary. Ultimately, this rubric demonstrates to our students that translation is a multifaceted process with many important nuances that clients expect, and the ability to deliver according to these expectations is what differentiates a true professional who can succeed in this field. Now I have to ask, will you be sharing the rubric in your handouts? Well, the answer is resounding yes. <laughs> we, we are. <laughs> Veronica, can you add to that a little yes, bit? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We would love to 
share the rubric with those who attend um, our presentation. And we would love to have closer dialogue and cooperation with other academic institutions that provide education and translating, interpreting, and talk more about grading standards and assessing quality. Well, thank you so much for finding the time. And I look forward to your session. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Winnie Hay. I'm currently the um, career advisor for the translation, interpretation, and localization management programs at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. I was trained as a Chinese English conference interpreter, and uh, I have close to 30 years of experience working in the language industry on a variety of roles. The title of my presentation at the ATA conference this year is A Brave New World of Career Possibilities for Linguists, How to Optimize Your Contribution. So what does the translation and interpreting ecosystem look like these days? The ecosystem aims to depict the diverse and abundant opportunities language students and language professionals can contribute to in today's world. Traditionally, language professionals see themselves as either translators or interpreters. And the pinnacle of achievement for them is probably working for an international organizations such as the United Nations or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of their countries. However, thanks to migration, government regulations, and globalization, language professionals now have many more ways to make their marks in the world. When I first entered the industry almost 30 years ago, I often heard that the language industry was the last of the cottage industry. In my view, it is no longer the case. It is now an industry that is close to $50 billion a year. While I saw the very positive evolution of the field, I realized when I became a career advisor three years ago that many of the young professionals still held very narrow views of where their career opportunities are. And that is why I have made it my mission to get the word out. What are some of the perhaps less known or unexpected career options in our industry nowadays? Yes, I will go over a lot of them in my presentation, but just to give you some examples, localization content manager, solutions architect, and internationalization engineer. Language professionals tend not to associate themselves with such job titles like solutions or architect or engineer. But regardless of your job title and role, young professionals are often surprised and intimidated to find themselves working closely with the technical and business staff. So my message is, if you're able to master at least two languages, you can learn anything. Think about the new subjects you need to learn as learning a new language. And in fact, you need to learn to speak other experts' languages so that you can get a seat at the table. So what skills and qualities do language professionals need to learn in order to thrive long term? Yeah, um, I think first of all is excellent command of your working languages. That's the foundation. And then it's being tech savvy, at least be comfortable with technology. And next is the soft skills, 
Um, just because you are a freelancer does not mean you don't need to deal with the workplace kind of issues. In fact, I would argue that soft skills are even more important for freelancers than those who are employed because you're always sourcing your next projects. And finally is resilience. Your world will change many times in your career. Be comfortable reinventing yourself continuously. So how can we become better at tracking and exploring new trends so that they don't take us unawares, as well as new career opportunities that arise because of them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think first is to get to know your profession today rather than the profession of past generations. Stay up to date. And this way you will open your eyes to career options. Next is get involved with your colleagues and professional associations. And finally, network, network, network. Always get to know your, your professional world and your colleagues. If you could share one piece of advice with people who consider translation or interpreting as a career path, what would it be? I would say think about the word career as a verb rather than a noun. Expect to change how you contribute over time. To build a sustainable and satisfying career, I would encourage those interested in the language profession to elevate their thinking from a task orientation to an impact orientation. Rather than looking for opportunities that allow you to translate and or interpret all day long, look for opportunities to use your language and other skills to make an impact on enabling communication in the current and future world. So how this is done is going to evolve over time. Evolve with it. On the surface, this sounds like a riskier approach because it lacks the certainty of aiming for a known job title like translator or interpreter, but it actually gives you more control over your career options. The job you're going to have in five years may not even exist today. So go find them, go create them, and enjoy the journey. Thank you so much, Winnie. It's been uh, great to talk to you, and we look forward to your session. And we encourage uh, all of our listeners to attend your session, too. Thank you. Hi, my name is John Milan. I am the treasurer of ATA. Uh, I am a Portuguese and Spanish to English translator and an economist. And I'm Corinne McKay. I'm the current ATA president, and I'm a French to English translator based in Boulder, Colorado. And the session we're going to be presenting is called Pricing Your Work Using Objective Data to Set Your Freelance Rates. And when we talk about the title of the presentation, we want to give a big hat tip to uh, Jonathan Hine, who is a longtime ATA member that many of your listeners probably know, who presented a pricing presentation at the ATA conference for certainly over 15 years because I attended it at the first ATA conference I ever went to, which was Toronto in 2004. So Jonathan is now um, retiring from commercial translation to focus exclusively on books and some other projects. And he um, placed his trust in John and 
me to continue the pricing presentation. And we also just found out we've been selected to be in the virtual conference as well. So the presentation will be recorded for anyone who attends the conference. You get the virtual conference for free afterwards, or you can buy it if you're not attending and our session will be on that. This is great. So based on, your, on the title of the session, you are not going to tell us to charge what we are worth. <laughs> I think John is the economist. That's probably more his department. What do you yeah, think, I, You know, I think, well, just for starters, and this is important, you know, we, uh, we're really focusing on freelancers here. Um, and so... And, and we're assuming that we're going to have a range of people in, that are in this, people who are just getting started and really don't know anything, as well as people who have been working as freelance translators or interpreters for some time. And they, and, and they want to understand better just how do I come up with pricing? What are the limitations that I face? And so I think we're going to try to address those issues uh, more so than saying this is what you should charge. It's not really going to be prescriptive. It's going to be a much more descriptive presentation. Now, are there any typical pricing mistakes that new translators tend to make? Tons. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean... I think, um, you know, one thing I always say, I teach business classes for translators also, and I always say, you know, if you ever find someone who says, you know, it's the business aspect of being a free freelancer that I love and I'm good at, it's the language part that's really hard for me, <laughs> then send that person to me because they are the only one who feels like that. I think, um, you know, most of us went into this job because we love languages, not because um, we aspire to run our own business. And then we met the reality of running our own business that even if we enjoy that, it can be really, really challenging. You know, I actually enjoy and I think John would say the same thing. I actually enjoy the business aspects and running my own business, but it's also very hard because I didn't go to business school. Um, you know, John certainly has a leg up there <laughs> having actually gone to school and studied such things <laughs> for a long time. But I have a master's in French literature and they didn't teach us much about pricing in my <laughs> master's in French literature program. So I think um, I'd love to hear yours, John, but I would say um, typical mistakes that beginners make are um, underestimating or even radically underestimating how much money you need to earn as a freelancer to achieve the same level of financial security as someone to with a traditional job. That's a huge one um, that I think many freelancers say, you know, okay, if I had a salary job, I'd be making this much per year. I just divide that by the number of hours I want to work as a freelancer. And hey, that's not that much. I don't need to charge that much at all. When in reality, um, first of all, as a freelancer, it's pretty rare that you bill 40 hours a week. I think any of us would say that, right? Um, and you have a lot of expenses that someone with a salary job doesn't have. Um, Self-employment tax, if you live in the US, is a pretty big hit. Um, retirement, paid vacation, perhaps you pay your own health insurance, you know, office equipment, like I just bought a new printer the other day, and that came out of my pocket, not my employer's pocket. Continuing education, if you're attending the ATA conference, that's a big investment and is something that an employer would probably pay for if you had one. 
So I think that is um, one of the most common mistakes um, I see. And also, you know, as the title of our presentation suggests, basing your rates on factors like fear and vague speculation about what other people are charging rather than on what you need or want to earn. So I don't know, John, what do you think? Typical. Yeah, those, those are all very, very good examples. And, and, and I think a lot of what you're discussing are things that I'm actually going to touch on, which I've touched on in, in other places, but um, it's for new, for new translators and interpreters, it's understanding your opportunity cost. And that's really what, what, what Corinne is, is describing. It's what other income or, um, you know, what other money could I earn if I was doing something else that I'm giving up to be a freelance translator or interpreter? And so you, you need to have a good understanding of your starting point because that's the minimum, minimum that you have to make to cover that opportunity cost to make sure that it's worth it at all. Um, and then there's just, a, I think, a general lack of understanding of the market. As Corinne said, a lot of people coming into the field probably don't have a business background. They don't understand necessarily pricing. They don't understand uh, all of the different costs that they're going to have to, to cover uh, in addition to just their time. And so all that stuff sort of comes together right at the outset. And so um, most likely new translators are very much going to undervalue their, their time. So what about experienced translators? Do they tend to make some mistakes? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, they're perfect. <laughs> that was a trick question. <laughs> you want to go first on that one, John? Sure, sure. I, I think that the biggest thing I see with experienced freelancers is rigidity. Um, this sense that I have to charge X. And if I can't get X, I'm not going to do that job. And they really get tied to an hourly rate or to a, a, a rate per word. And if that, is, if that exact amount isn't hit, well, then I'm not going to do that type of job. And so uh, they really get stuck there. Um, and I think that in that way, they end up closing off market opportunities to themselves. Because really, one of the things that you realize the longer that you're in the, in the biz is that there are things that are more difficult and there are things that are easier. And so uh, you can price things a little bit differently. You can accept a range of rates for different types of work. You don't really have to stick with just one thing as long as you recognize the, the relative difficulty of what you're doing. So I think that's one of the big things. And if Corinne, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think um, for experienced people, I feel like the thing that John said that kind of resonates with me too is it's more um, mindset mistakes. <laughs> I think experienced translators know, for example, you know, how many words an hour they translate. So what hourly rate their per word rate translates into. Um, you know, I think when I see people in my beginning business classes, you could tell them that the average translator translates 50 words an hour or 2000 words an hour and they would believe you because they have no idea <laughs> where you know of course they don't they never translated much before where i'd say you know for any of us on this podcast if i showed you a document and asked how long you thought it would take to translate it you'd probably be correct to within maybe 10 percent 
Um, I know that happens to me because I translate in pretty narrow subject areas that, um, that I know within about 10% how long it's going to take me to translate something as long as there are no surprises. So I think with experienced translators, it's a little more mindset mistakes and two big ones that I see are um, coasting <laughs> and passivity. So number one, coasting, you know, thinking I don't need to do any marketing or improve my skills or continue doing professional development because I've been at this for 20 years and I know, I don't know that I would necessarily say people feel like they know everything, but they feel like they don't need to evolve anymore. And I think, you know, my hope, I'm 46, almost 47 now, and my hope is that if I do this job for another 20 to 25 years, I'm still evolving. Um, you know, when I'm in my 60s or 70s. And then also, I just think a big one, and when it comes to pricing, especially so, is passivity. Um, you know, not doing any marketing, not doing any professional development, and then complaining, everybody else makes more money than I do. Everybody else gets the sweet, high-paying clients. <laughs> and whereas I think the people who have that interesting, well-paying work would tell you they work like a maniac, you know, to land that client, either by actively pursuing the client or by being out there at conferences and online and things like that, such that the interesting high paying client noticed them. So I think those are two that you really want to watch out for if you have been in the business, let's say, you know, 10 years or more, certainly 20 years or more. Thank you. I'd like to circle back to the um, rigidity in rates issue for experienced translators. So what other factors should we take into account if we don't want to be super rigid? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the like I said, the, the key one is taking a look at the type of work that you're going to be doing and trying to determine the how, how technical or, you know, how easy or difficult it's going to be for you to do it. That really adding a time component to it can can make a difference. And so when I say, you know, you may have a range of rates, I'm not talking about a 50% range, <laughs> you know, where you have this huge difference in your pricing, but you can have a, a 10%, 15% range of pricing that, that you charge. Um, and so I think that, that rather than being really stuck on one specific amount that you think you have to make, taking in some of those other factors can, can really make a difference. In addition, and I think this is something, you know, that everyone sees in the business world, when you're trying to land a new client, you can consider as well looking at, well, okay, maybe I will give a discount, but making it clear up front uh, to the client, you know, I'm, I'm going to charge you a little bit less than, you know, up front here, but this is my normal rate and moving forward, this is what I'm going to be charging. And so, you're, you know, you're using just different pricing strategies and rather than just saying, this is it, take it or leave it. And one thing we're going to talk about in the presentation is the idea of um, what I call green, yellow, and red zone rates. John probably has an economist term for that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't use colors so much, but okay. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> right, right. Right. Economists aren't such, a, such fans of the primary color scheme. <laughs> but I think it works well for freelancers. It worked well for me when I started out, where you sort of go... My green zone is, that's my ideal rate. Like basically, I'm going to say yes to pretty much any client who pays in my green zone. Then in my yellow zone, 
there has to be a non-economic reason for me to take that work on. So for example, it's particularly interesting. It has a long deadline and I can work on it on my own schedule when I don't have other work coming in. So an example of that would be, I love translating books, but I could not really afford to just translate books. So I negotiate a long deadline such that I'm committing maybe 30% of my work time to that book project and also fitting it in when I don't have other work or when I want something that can be purely on my own schedule. Um, but in my yellow zone, there has to be a non-economic reason for me to take that. Maybe for someone else, it would be they're branching out into a new specialization. And this is in the new specialization, so it furthers their own career goals. And then I think equally importantly is a red zone where you say, I do not press the on button on my computer for less than this amount of money. Because I think one thing, and you know, John, maybe you can talk about this from the economist standpoint as well, is I think psychologically, because our work is priced in such small increments, you think, okay, I'm really being petty here because the client wants to negotiate down a half a cent. Like, you know, how money grubbing is that, that I won't negotiate half a cent? But the thing is, if you translate half a million words a year, like a lot of us do, half a cent is actually a lot. <laughs> you know, if, if, if every client, um, you know, if you negotiated your rate with every client by half a cent, that would actually turn into quite a bit of money um, over the course of the year. So I think it's equally important to say, you know, this is the rate below which I do not work. And I think, you know, again, like John probably has better insights into that than I do as to, I think translators are particularly susceptible to that because you think, well, it's such a small amount of money. It's half a cent, it's one cent. Whereas if you were talking about your hourly rate or your rate for the whole project, you would be less likely to negotiate because it seems like more money, even though it's not. Yeah, I, I think what I would what I would add to that is 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 this idea that that as we as we develop client relationships, um, and and Mike Collins, who is here in the Carolinas with me, I know Katya knows Mike very well. Uh, Mike Collins talks about firing bad clients. That as you develop a, a portfolio of clients, and you have clients who pay you better, um, you may have taken on a client that one that constantly wants to negotiate down or is constantly putting the price pressure on you. And as you are able to fill up your portfolio with clients, you start letting those ones go, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that those they're really they're they're the first ones that you say, yeah, I, that's okay. I'm I'm not going to continue to negotiate with you. I'm going to move on. But but the key is first you have to fill up the amount of time that you're trying to work, however many hours a week you're trying to fill up in the first place. Yep. Let's go back to the question of fear. I think that it's a very big factor, especially in the beginning, because, uh, well, you're afraid you're not good enough. You're afraid you're not going to get enough hours in, and then you're afraid that the rate is going to forever stay in the those are the clients i would love to fire range so how do you stop being afraid <laughs> <laughs> well i think um 
first of all, as the title of our presentation would suggest, you try as much as you can to rely on objective data. So, you know, when students in my business classes ask me, um, you know, it's not uncommon that I'll get an email from a former student saying, here's an offer I got from a client and I can't decide whether or not to take it. What do you think? Um, that I always say, you tell me, <laughs> because I can't tell you whether this project fits your financial goals or not. Um, you know, you have the objective data because you did that in the class and we're going to give people a handout in the presentation that will help them do this too. You tell me, does this meet your target rate or does it have non-economic advantages that would justify taking a project that does not meet your target rate? Um, because I think, you know, as John touched on before, especially those who are first starting out, um, it, you are going to be constantly balancing um, is this worth it when I might not have any other work? Like at what point is working better than not working? Because it's easy to say, you know, make sure that you're charging enough to achieve the same level of financial security as someone with a traditional job, but you also have to do things like eat and keep the lights on. So first, I think you rely on objective data. The, another thing I think that is very important is always have a business development activity that you are doing if you don't have paying work. I think that's important for beginners and experienced translators a lot uh, or alike, because I think you never want to be thinking, um, I am backed into a corner and I have to take this project because otherwise I'll sit here and do nothing. You should never be sitting there and do, doing nothing. You should always have business development activities that keep you busy when you don't have paying work. And then another objective thing I think is really important to track to avoid fear is um, always be looking at your income over the longer term than just today or last week. So I think as freelancers, we have this tendency to feel that the state of our business will always be what it is right at this moment. So when you are flush with work and you have tons of you know, high paying, interesting stuff, you feel like that's the way your business is always going to be. And that's probably not true. But also when you're in a drought um, and you don't have much work, you feel like that is the way your business is always going to be. And that's probably not true either. So as an example, one thing I do that I think a lot of people do do, but you should probably rely on it more, is I track my outstanding invoices so that I know how much I'm going to get paid in the next 30 days, assuming that the clients pay on a 30-day cycle, which you know some of my European clients take longer, but it gives me a rough idea. So I look at that and I know um, I have in my head the number, the amount of money I want to make per month. And when I look at my outstanding invoices and I see, okay, I'm a little bit ahead of that, I could afford to turn down um, a project that I'm not particularly interested in, or I'm a little behind that and I really need to take, you know, everything that comes my way that I feel qualified for um, in order to, you know, make up when I'm in a bit of a deficit. And I think uh, going back to the fear thing, if you do that over the course of the year, then I think it tells you whether your fear is justified. Um, because to give you an example, the first quarter of this year, I just had this idea in my head, like things are a little slow 
slow. I don't know. I feel like things are a little slow. But then when I looked at my income for the quarter, I was actually right on target. So it was purely a perception that I think I, you know, worked on a lot of large projects where I did, you know, work, 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 work for six weeks at a time and then had a week without much work. But in the end, it turned into the amount of money that I wanted to make. So I think my, you know, combating fear technique two are two things relying on that objective data and always being busy. I really never, you know, in terms of mindset, I never give myself a second at my desk that I'm not doing something productive because I think that's when the insidious thoughts start to creep in. (laughs) Um, Yeah. and, and, And what I would add to that, and this goes mostly to new people in the field as you're coming in. Uh, new freelancers, no matter what the field, and this is not just translation and interpreting. They, these, are, these are people who freelance in any field. Um, you, you pretty much have to ease into freelancing. Very few people say, I'm going to be a freelancer, and next month they have a full full set of work. Yeah, that's, 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 really just not a, that's not a thing, right? So... Um, I know that a lot of people, it's, it's one of the ways to sort of combat fear is have some other source of income, have something else that you can do that can even just a minimal amount of income. But if you know you have something you can rely on, then you can build your business in a more confident way. You can take the projects that you want to take. And so uh, that's something I would definitely recommend for anyone that's, that's new and in, in getting into it is really having that. And then as you become more experienced, I think the really important thing is diversify. Make sure that you're not limiting your income to just a very few sources. Make sure you have lots of different types of clients and in lots of different locations as well, um, because that way you're hedging your bets and that really is just a, a risk management strategy um, that you know that you're diversified and you know that if one income stream is starting to dry up, well, I've got this other one that I can rely on. So I think that also can really help to combat fear. Yeah. And just so people know that those are actual examples. I know um, when I attended Jonathan's pricing presentation, when he first started freelancing, he worked at the local libraries, you know, some amount of hours a week to have like a baseline income that he could count on. And the first, um, in my second through fourth year of freelancing, I worked part-time as a contract linguist for the FBI. And again, it was, um, you know, the hourly rate was lower than what I made from my private sector freelance clients, but it was income that I could count on that allowed me to continue freelancing long enough that I had a solid portfolio of my own freelance clients. Because I think what John touched on, and, you know, this is probably something we should emphasize too, is it probably takes longer than you think to establish a thriving freelance business. You know, as John said, I think it is um, really unwise to have in your head this idea, you know, unless you do a really, really in-demand language combination or specialization, in which case, good for you. (laughs) But for those of us, (laughs) I mean, I know for myself, um, when I started in, you know, a strong but fairly common language combination without a really obvious specialization, it took me about a year and a half until I stopped thinking, is this definitely going to work? You know, um, am I definitely going to be able to achieve a, you know, sufficient level of income as a freelancer? That was not two weeks into my freelance career. That was more like over a year, 
you know, and somebody like John, who has a strong specialization from a previous career, it might be shorter, but it's not unusual that it could be, I'd say, one to two years. Absolutely. This, this is very valuable advice. Thank you so much, both. We um, look forward to this presentation and uh, it will definitely be very interesting and um, useful for both new beginners and, and seasoned professionals. Great. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and to the um, Slavic Language Division for this really awesome initiative and to you guys for carrying it out. Thank you for having me here. Uh, this is a great opportunity to give a little glimpse into uh, my presentation at the upcoming ATA conference. My name is Elena Moro. I was born and raised in Ukraine in the city of Cherkasy. I studied uh, Russian and Ukrainian literature there and uh, came to the United States in 1992 as the Soviet Union was falling apart. Um, I pursued education here in the fields of history and Russian language at California State University, Sacramento. My career in the interpreting field, interpreting and translation started uh, with ed educational interpreting. Then I moved on to project management for written projects at the university level and uh, also worked a little bit for social services and then joined UC Davis Medical Center medical interpreting services in the supervisory capacity in 2001. And I have been here um, in this department since then. And uh, I received my ATA certification in the English to Russian pair in 2007. And then I also uh, pursued the National uh, Healthcare Interpreter Certification, CMI, and received it in 2016 also in Russian. I also serve as a grader for ATA's Ukrainian to English group. And in my current capacity as a manager, I also train medical interpreters on the local, statewide, and nationwide level. And I am also working on my master's degree in public policy and administration currently in my last year at uh, California State University, Sacramento. So that is a little bit about myself in a nutshell. The title of my presentation is Legal Issues and Reporting Requirements for Staff Healthcare Interpreters. Could you tell us more about your work in the University of California Davis Health System? What goes into managing medical interpreting services there? Sure, that's a great question. So to give you a little um, idea as to the size of the medical center and all of the things that we do here, it is a... Uh, uh, one of the five medical centers within the University of California, and it is a hospital. So we have hospital and also ambulatory side with many, many clinics and specialties, uh, cancer center, and uh, many uh, regional outlying primary care network clinics as well. So the hospital is, has 631 beds. It is a level one trauma center the only one north of San Francisco. So if uh, you see any big accidents or anything like that happening, then uh, you know that those uh, patients are being transported via helicopter to us. We are an academic and research facility, which means that uh, it, when you're a patient here, it's not just a doctor coming to see you. It's a bunch of other people, such as residents and fellows and trainees. 
And the mission of our facility is person-centered care, education, research, population health, and also sustainability. So not all hospitals have a dedicated interpreting services department. Uh, majority of hospitals or medical centers around the country rely on vendors to provide this service or on bilingual staff. We are a little bit different. We were established back in the 80s and uh, uh, we ha currently have 50 staff and we service 20 languages in-house and all the overflow, everything that we cannot service, um, of course, goes to the vendors either over the phone or in person. So our department has a very robust operation. We also have a unit that handles written translation projects for all five uh, University of California Medical Center campuses. We also have a training program for healthcare interpreters. Uh, we hold a 40-hour training once a year. We support two externship programs, one with the local uh, American River College, which is a two-semester healthcare interpreter program. So their trainees come to our medical facility and uh, they shadow interpreters and they try them their own skills in interpreting under supervision. And the second externship is with the Middlebury Institute of International Affairs in Monterey. We take in their uh, externs every summer. We also have launched a clinician certification program, so bilingual doctors and pharmacists and let's see who else. Uh, so the clinician level where they treat patients and deliver care, we have started a program of assessing their language skills, which allows them to deliver care to patients directly without interpreters. So I oversee all of these programs and I look to see what the future holds and where our department should be turning next and what needs to be developed to service the needs of the hospital and the clinics. And uh, I also am leading the UC-wide language access collaboration effort for all five UC medical centers. So I wear many hats and uh, I enjoy this field of work very much, like I say to all my staff. Any day here is never dull. Everything is different every single day and uh, everything changes and there are many challenges, which is uh, what I enjoy. Wow, this is fascinating. So with this in mind, uh, what qualities and skills are you looking for in uh, medical interpreters? So for medical interpreters, the field is a little bit different as far as the opportunities for uh, training and for practicing their skills. So, for example, uh, languages of wider diffusion, such as Spanish, have greater opportunities nationwide and on, on the local level as well, because uh, they have more training programs in that language, uh, wh where for languages of smaller diffusion, such as, let's say, Hmong or Lao, there are fewer resources available for uh, interpreters to develop the skills in their own language, but there are resources for them to develop skills and um, take training in English. So what we typically look for when hiring interpreters on board is, of course, national certification in healthcare interpreting, which currently is limited to certain languages, and then uh, knowledge of medical terminology. So I strongly suggest that people who decide to have healthcare interpreting as their career, they need to take a medical terminology class at the community college level and at least six months of experience in the field. So interpreting as a freelancer, and this question keeps coming up in every training class that I hold. Some trainees ask, 
what if I work in a dual role capacity such as receptionist or medical assistant and I also provide interpreting services? Does that count? And so the short answer is no, because we are looking for people who serve in the role of a dedicated medical interpreter. So also helpful skills would be people skills, communication skills, and uh, curiosity and striving to learn more every day. New terminology, new procedures and and tests are very frequently coming out in the United States uh, medical system. So someone who is looking to learn more. And also a person who is resourceful has all of their apps on their phone to help them look for a term term that they don't know uh, and prepared for constant change. Because in this field, especially if you work for a large hospital like ours, emergencies come up all the time and uh, you may be on your way to one assignment when our dispatcher will page you or call you and redirect you to something else, something that came up. So just be be very flexible with that. So those are the skills and, and knowledge and desirable features of a healthcare interpreter in a nutshell. Thank you. It sounds like a very dynamic field. But to circle back to the topic of your presentation at the ATA conference, would you say that there are some aspects of legal issues of healthcare interpreting that are uh, presenting an additional challenge uh, to interpreters in that field? All right, so that is a very good question. This is why I put this presentation together and I'm holding it uh, at the ATA is because these uh, real life situations come up all the time for healthcare interpreters and frequently they're ill-prepared for handling these situations. Uh, So many times the interpreter will tell us after the fact, well, this and this happened and I didn't know what to do. So since uh, there are many situations that potentially present uh, legal ramifications, uh, this is why I decided to put together a separate training. And I actually teach uh, this module in the 40-hour course that we hold every year because the interpreters need to understand that these issues will be coming up and uh, need to be prepared to how to handle these situations. So for example, uh, some of the things that I will go over in the presentation is who is a mandated reporter? What does that mean? Is it just the staff interpreter? Or what about the freelancers? What are the requirements for them? What if they see something, you know, that is odd or doesn't make sense or some violation while they are involved in the interpreting session in healthcare, uh, what should they do? So that is one of the issues. Another one that uh, keeps coming up frequently is what if a patient wants to video record or audio record a session where the interpreter is involved? So what are some of the legal ramifications of that? Is it okay for the patient to do this? And if the interpreter notices that this is the case, then what should the interpreter do? And then another issue, another example we're going to go over is uh, the consent forms. So it seems like a simple form that is frequently used before the patient is taken in for surgery or procedure. So what if the consent form says translator? Or what if the interpreter is asked to sign as a witness? And for example, what if the provider had already gone over the form with the patient in in their native language and then the interpreter arrives and the provider says, oh, I just need you to sign this. 
should the interpreter sign? Should they abstain? So these are all the gray area situations where many of the interpreters are caught off guard and they don't know what to do. Another situation would be, what if the interpreter is there as a medical staff interpreter and then the police arrive and they are in the room with the patient questioning the patient? What are the limitations? What are some of the legal issues involved in that scenario? So what should the interpreter know? Um, and uh, should they be interpreting for the police or not? And then as the last part of my presentation, I plan to go over some of the new laws that took effect in, in California specifically in 2016. There are four laws that were put into place, some related to prescription drug labels, end-of-life act, family caregivers, and medical interpreting services policy on the hospital website. All four of these laws uh, pertain to the provision of language services in healthcare. So it would be very helpful for the interpreters, staff interpreters, as well as freelance interpreters to know that uh, such things exist and what are the provisions of each one. So that is the focus of my presentation in a nutshell. Thank you so much for the summary. It sounds great. I can't wait to attend your presentation. And thank you so much for finding time to join us on the podcast. All right. Not a problem. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Today we have uh, Lydia Razren-Stone, who is a Russian-English translator. She is the editor of Slav File, the newsletter of ADA Slavic Languages Division and a grader for ADA's Russian into English certification exam. Lydia, could you please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay. You said some of the things that are most relevant, but I can say that I'm a second-generation Slavic speaker. My father came to this country from Belarus in around 1920. We don't know exactly when he arrived, but we have his passport from 1919. And my mother's parents and siblings, everyone but her, were born on the Polish-Ukrainian border. It's hard to know exactly what to call that country. I was not brought up bilingual, unfortunately for me. But in my early teens, my father told me that since I loved poetry and literature above all things, I had better learn Russian, where all the best poetry and literature came from, and he would help me. And he did help me quite a lot. His accent was not quite, you know, standard Moscow Russian. However, my main breakthrough came when I was 19 at a ridiculously demanding college, where we were assigned to read War and Peace in Russian in three weeks. I was so interested in all of the things in that novel that I forgot to look up words. And by the time I was through, I could read Russian without thinking in English. And that was probably my biggest boost. My longest stint as a professional full-time staff translator was 10 years keeping track of Russian space medicine and biology for NASA. Uh, you said I've been ATA RAE certified and ATA member since 1983 and I'm most proud of being a founding member of SLD. In my retirement from making significant money, I have concentrated on editing the SLAW file, the certification, nearly my only sources of actual earned income, and on translating poetry. 
I've published five books of poetry translation and recently co-authored an ER dictionary of sports idioms. My interest in the foibles of English grammar has been strengthened by 20 plus years. We don't quite remember how long we've been doing this of teaching intermediate advanced English to immigrants and making up all the materials so that we can keep our program completely free. I'm giving two presentations this year, one directed at out of English translators and interpreters on the ins and outs of phrasal verbs, a real bugaboo for everyone. The second one will be a Slavic track presentation in which I will ask the audience to vote on the acceptability of compromises I have made in poetry translation. When I thought of this topic, I was just dying to do it and was delighted when very recently it was accepted off the waiting list after a slot opened up. Do you have some examples of glaring misunderstandings of phrasal verbs by non-native speakers of English that you would like to share with our listeners? Sadly, I don't. I have rarely edited English into Russian translations, and when I have done so, they've been scientific or literary, and were not the, sa the kind of register in English to contain the kind of phrasal verbs I hear in conversation or read in commentary in the media. But it's a good idea. I can ask for examples when I start my presentation from the audience, who probably from all kinds of languages have great examples. What is your advice to translators working from English who are stumped by phrasal verbs? My sympathies. I really should have titled this presentation, Phrasal Verbs, Know Your Enemy. Because what I'm going to be talking about is the different ways that phrasal verbs work to create nuances of meaning, not to mention confusion, particularly to competent non-native English speakers. I will be giving many examples. There is no way to use reason or general grammatic rules to interpret a particular phrasal verb. Just because a phrasal verb you encounter seems similar to one whose meaning you know, or even is identical but used in a different context, does not mean that the meaning is going to be the same or highly similar. Sometimes nouns or adjectives based on phrasal verbs, for example, have quite different meanings than the verbs. I felt very guilty about translators possibly coming to my talk, hoping for a kind of all-purpose phrasal verb Rosetta Stone, which I'm afraid I cannot provide. I would if I could. So I decided to do two things to soothe my aching conscience. First, several years ago, I collected about 6,000 idiomatic usages from U.S. press reporting on the last presidential campaign. Of these, more than 10% were phrasal verbs. I then looked up all of these in my most extensive phrasal verb dictionary, and I found that more than 250 of these were not listed. So I created my own dictionary with my best understanding of their meaning of these, and I intend to post it on the SLD website as soon as I proofread it. In addition, since my husband and I are contemplating moving to a significantly smaller house from our current large book-stuffed one, I am bringing all the phrasal verb dictionaries I have to the conference and will distribute them among audience members who would like one. I'll use some kind of a lottery, a chance system to decide who gets what if they're more takers than books. The most valuable help a non-native English speaker can have when confronted with a confounding phrasal verb is a translation partner, 
or at least a kind of a consultant who is a native speaker of English, ideally working in the opposite language pair. Beyond that, I would suggest concentrating on trying to internalize the possible meanings of at least the most common prepositions and adverbs as they are, as they are used in phrasals. There are many, many fewer of these than there are of the verbs entering into the phrasal combinations. Several of my dictionaries have good, relatively brief surveys of these preposition meanings, and I will see about scanning and posting one along with the dictionary I created. When I was working on this dictionary, I used Google search for the phrasal, including in my search prompt the word define or the word meaning or sometimes both. And I myself had 100% success finding a meaning I felt to be correct. However, I am a native English speaker, and I already knew the approximate meaning I was looking for. But I still think that Google search will be the best thing to point to dictionaries. You will get as your answer to the search a number of dictionaries, and perhaps individuals will develop a favorite that they, dictionary that they can access directly. I would also advise translators who have to translate English materials containing phrasals to read as much similar English material as possible. New phrasals are always popping up, and most of us native speakers simply learn them through context. So could you tell us more about the specific features of phrasal verbs you will be analyzing during the session? I will be talking about the various functions of phrasal verbs, which native speakers who know this in some unconscious way have not thought about. For example, to make a verb have a perfective meaning, clean up, for example, is perfective and clean is imperfective. Who says there's no distinction in English? Or to transform a transitive into an intransitive. For example, freshen needs an object as transitive, but freshen up is a kind of a, um, what would be a uh, flexive and is intransitive. Or the, the opposite transformation. Sit is intransitive, but sit through a meeting, for example, or this presentation, is transitive. I'll also touch on some tricky syntactic features, such as the rule that when a noun is the direct object of a phrasal, it may either follow the preposition or follow the verb. To give an example, tell my boss off or tell off my boss are both acceptable. However, a pronoun must come between the verb and preposition. You can say, I'm going to tell him off, but not tell off him. I will also talk about phrasals with two particles after them, get away with, for example, and the use of the indefinite it in some phrasal verbs, which may refer to whatever you were just talking about or may have even a more indefinite meaning. Two such verbs are get it over with or knock it off. Um, I will also discuss phrasal verbs acting as metaphors stemming from more or less culturally specific realms of activity that non-native speakers may not be highly familiar with. For example, here's a fairly long list. Chalk up, strike out, flip off, kick off, pan out, face off, run off, toss up, 
trot out and wipe out. All of these have specific American cultural sources, which may or may not by, be shared by another language. I can't tell you that. The fin I'll also discuss the phenomenon of phrasals with multiple meanings, sometimes that are d meanings that are very different from each other, and the metamorphosis of phrasal verbs into nouns and adjectives, which may or may not have the same meaning as the verb. It's a complicated subject, and I love complicated subjects. What are your favorite dictionaries or online resources that you would recommend to uh, translators? I don't really have a criterion other than number of entries. Also, all of my dictionaries were bought on the cheap. I recommend Abe books for such things and are not the latest editions. Of these, the Oxford Dictionary cites the most terms, 11,000, although not all of the most current ones are even in there. Some other dictionaries are for English learners, and for some reason these are, seem to be produced almost exclusively in Great Britain. And these give simpler and more complete explanations. However, no one really needs a paper dictionary anymore. I just like them because I'm old. As I said, a computer search turns up a number of different sources and is more likely than any paper dictionary to have the most trendy phrasal verbs defined. Uh, that is what I have to say about phrasal verbs. In that case, we can continue with questions about your next presentation called 50 or so ways to leave your author. When is infidelity forgivable in poetry translation? You know that these abstracts are limited in words, numbers, so I like long titles. Your first question, I believe, asked how I decided on the idea for the session. Well, I've translated a great deal of poetry on commission and for my own recreation, and I it's not necessarily the most popular 21st century procedure, but Russians like it. I always try to keep as close as possible to the formal features of the original. I consider this task to be one of multidimensional problem solving, where you have to optimize the complex product by compromising, being somewhat unfaithful on each dimension because of the demands of the other dimensions. At some point, the old 1970s song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, came into my head. For those of you who are not old enough to remember this song, the refrain goes, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover, 50 ways to leave your lover. You just slip out the back, Jack, make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy, just set yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. No need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and set yourself free. Well, the song ran around in my head and somehow reminded me of a previous presentation, which I had called, Why is a translator of poetry like an unfaithful husband? I don't know if I shouldn't, should have said spouse in these, in the, these more gender nonspecific days, but I didn't. It was a while ago. The answer to this question is both are constantly trying to justify lack of fidelity to themselves or others in the name of a higher principle or by using a plea of no alternative. I put these two ideas together and came up with the presentation idea and title, substituting, of course, author for lover. I knew I would no, have no trouble finding examples because I commit infidelity 
in one way or another many times in every poem I translate. Will the attendees have an opportunity to vote on their favorite infidelity? I don't know what you would mean by favorite. The best infidelity, meaning the most acceptable, or the worst, meaning the one you most want to eliminate, or perhaps the funniest. I did want to have audience participation. Seeing at last year's slams how much livelier such presentations are, I am thinking of asking audience members to vote not on the best, but whether a bit of infidelity was a mortal or venial sin, or even completely forgivable on the grounds of translator self-defense. The great majority of the translations I want to use to discuss are my own, but I will be citing a couple of Nabokov into English translation and one Russian translation of Robert Frost, because it was such a good example. I indeed came up with 50, as in the title, but there is no way that they can be dis all be discussed even briefly in an hour presentation. So when choosing examples of poetry translations, uh, what were the criteria you used? Okay, I had four, I decided. Either poems many of my audience would know, or ones where brief ex excerpts were enough to make the point, since I didn't want to take the time to quote whole poems. Different types and degrees of infidelity, and different reasons why it was necessary. Translations where I myself was more or less satisfied with the compromises I made, so that I'm not giving you something that I myself would like to improve. And last, making the audiences laugh or at least smile. Could you give us some examples of the kinds of infidelity you will be talking about? Well, let me start with the funniest story. A long time ago, many years ago, I accepted a commission from a publishing company to translate a book by Irina Ratushinskaya. What I didn't know was that the company was a bunch of an outfit called Jesus People with very set ideas about the religious imagery that Irina uses should be translated. Irina herself was a delight to work with, but the editors gave me all kinds of problems. Second-guessing my translations for word-for-word -word accuracy. They prepared to have a non-poetry-loving native Russian speaker checking everything and would reject translations that Irina loved on the grounds of such accuracy. They also seemed to care nothing about retaining formal features, including beauty of sound. I found their constant interference quite annoying. At one point, the poet was wishing some townspeople well and said, I translated this, may there be larks in each garden and swans in each pond, and the rhyme was just fine. The editors came back with me and told me that they had reason to suspect that larks was not the correct bird name. Now, I'm an amateur bird watcher and even once finagled a bird watching day outside of Moscow, I saw Sinitsi, and I know very well that the translation is not larks. So, in this case, I very docilely wrote back to Jesus' people, agreeing to change the line to the more accurate. May there be great tits in each garden. Needless to say, they agreed to go back to my first version. Okay, here's another example of a different sort. 
Uh, I recently came upon this poem. I kind of love Austed, although I was was not among the things I was read to as a child. Could you read the poem for me in Russian first? It's very short. Если в школу опоздал на урок литературы и придумать не сумел уважительной причины, говори, что поправлял дядя хворому подушку, потому что дядя твой уважать себя заставил. Hardly anyone, vanishingly small percentage of English speakers study Onegin in high school. Here it is. Are you failing Russian lit? Sleep so late you rarely make it? Not to worry, you can fake it. To the prof, head bowed, admit that Onegin had so moved you, you believed that it behooved you by your uncle's bed to sit. Clearly, this is a very, very free translation. Who knows if it can even be called a translation at all? Unlike the first case I gave you, the infidelities cover most of the poem. The question here is whether it is an acceptable rendition or has to be called in English as some poems are after, in this case, after Auster. The biggest question is whether a more faithful translation would mean anything at all to more than a handful of English speakers. On the other hand, perhaps my translation only expands this handful a tiny bit. I also must remark that I added the rhyme simply because I couldn't help it. And for an Ulster poem, there's actually more rhyme in this than in most of his poems. Here is a second example of a different kind. Many of you will know the beautiful Silentium by Tuchev. Could you read the first verse, please? Молчи, скрывайся и таи, и чувствуй мечты свои. Пускай в душевной глубине встают и заходят они, безмолвно, как звезды в ночи. Любуйся ими и молчи. Okay, here it is in English. Keep still, be silent and conceal your dreams, your thoughts, all that you feel. Within your soul they'll set and rise like stars, unseen by other eyes. A sense of wonder they'll instill when gazed upon, if you'll keep still. This is an 18-line poem, and 15 of these lines are iambic. However, in the Russian, three of them, two in the stanza, the first stanza I just quoted, are amphibrach. And my weakness in Russian stress caused me not even to notice this. Of course, a Russian native speaker will. Tuchev evidently insisted they remain that way. I would like to know, was I wrong to regularize the poem? Larry Bolgoslav was the one, I want to give him credit, who pointed this out to me. That's the question I'm going to ask. Okay, here is something translated into English by Nabokov. Yes, that Nabokov. Will you read the uh, four lines? Надежда, я останусь цел. Не для меня земля сырая, а для меня твои тревоги и добрый мир твоих забот. Okay, here's Nabokov's rather prosy version. Speranza, I'll remain unharmed. The clammy earth is not for me, because for me are your misgivings and the kind world of your concern. 
Well, I myself have a number of concerns with this excerpt, but the main one is the translation of the Russian name Nadezhda into the Italian name Speranza with the same meaning, hope. I have no idea why he did this. It has nothing to do with Italians, either as the English audience or the original audience or the milieu of the poem. Uh, perhaps he thought more English speakers would know the meaning of, Ita of the Italian name than the Russian. And if he really wanted that, I don't understand why he didn't use the name Hope. I just don't know, but I wonder if other people would find this as bizarre as I and my uh, Russian partner in translating Okujava would have found this. Uh, that's my last example. I think there's a range of um, infidelities in them. I think I can fit in about 15 more in my presentation. These are all great examples. Thank you very much. So could you tell us which poem was the most fun to translate and why? Veronica, translating poetry is my idea of fun. Please don't ask me to choose among my children. Thank you for having me. My name is Annalisa Lotti. I'm an English-Spanish translator, uh, originally from Argentina, with a master's degree in translation, and I've been working in environmental translation for four or five years now. And the session that I'm going to present, well, it's called The Journey of 10,000 Miles, Translating Environmental Nonfiction, and will be based around a book that I translated a few months ago, and it's hopefully uh, publishing uh, into Spanish in the fall called The Narrow Edge, A Tiny Bird, An Ancient Crab, and an Epic Journey uh, by Deborah Kramer. Um, it's an environmental nonfiction book, and um, I'll tell you a bit more once you shoot me with questions. <laughs> oh, we would love to. So the first one is about the jargon aspect of environmental nonfiction translation. Okay. What would you say was the most baffling piece of jargon that you have encountered when translating The Narrow Edge? Well, I would start uh, by telling you that I can't find one most baffling piece. There are a bunch. <laughs> uh, and certainly there were, we were talking about many technical terms, very rigorous scientific terms that needed to be just as precise. But, um, but let me tell you a bit about the book itself. It's about, so it's an environmental nonfiction book. So this means it's rooted in strong science with pages and pages of scientific notes and bibliography, but it's targeted to lay readers. So the wording and the way the whole book is treated <laughs> is for average reader, not scientists. Um, and because we're talking about the environment, the prose, it's very uh, literary. It, it appeals to the emotions because it wants to call for action to say to all of us, look, we need to care about these species. They're endangered. They're suffering. And it's because of us. So we better do something about it. <laughs> so um, about the jargon and about the technical terms, there were a few 
I can categorize them in big groups, and there are a few more, but since I don't have a lot of time, I decided to um, tell you a bit about two big groups of these technical terms and uh, that required a lot of research, a lot of consulting with scientists. I had the, the pleasure of working very closely with the author and with a lot of scientists that are mentioned in the book and a lot of digging. It required a lot of digging on my part. So uh, one of the big categories that was difficult was geographical features in our landscape because this is uh, the bird that the birds that are uh, talked about in the book are all shorebirds. They're birds that live, migrate, travel, and feed along the edges of the sea. And so, because of that, there are tons of words related to water, to landscape related to water, that needed to be very precise. Um, words that I've never heard before, or words that, I, that were very dependent on the landscape uh, where they originated and didn't exactly occur in my target geography <laughs> the, the, of the translation. So I can tell you a few. Speaking of precision, for example, I had tidal flats, for example, that are different to mud flats, that also are different to flats. And I needed to keep that differentiation uh, in my translation. I also had tidal creeks that are not any type of creeks. I couldn't use um, the word for creek, which is very, tidal creek is a very specific type of um, water that runs into, the, into inland from, from the tides. So it's, so it's not fresh water, it's salty water. Prairie pothole, for example, it's a geolog geological formation in the, in the Midwest, or Playa Lake, very, very specific type of lake. So all different water formations with their own geologic history that I couldn't ignore um, and I needed to do something or something that didn't occur any other place else but here in the U.S. in the south uh, called rice impoundments. They're a type of man-made lake that, that were left after the rice plantations in the south were uh, stopped or, or abandoned. And now they're there for conservation issues. They manage the level of water, they, um, they create them, they stop them, and especially for species conservation and, and hunting too, um, hunting species. So that was a big group <laughs> that required a lot, of, um, a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of um, very precise and rigorous digging. And then, of course, <laughs> the other big, big one uh, was bird names. And this was very uh, interesting because what happened with migratory bird names is that people call them differently in different countries, regardless of language. So I was translating this into Spanish. It's a language that's spoken by many, many countries, very different countries in the whole Americas. And birds have a scientific name, and that's common to all languages, which is in Latin, um, for other species have the same happens, but they also have a common name. And there is a lot of regional variation in birds because people I see them on the sky, they attach the meaning, they attach them uh, special meanings to them, and the obvious way in which they attach a meaning is by giving them a, a name. So that was very, very hard for a book that was supposed to uh, go to the whole 
American continent to, to the Americas. And, so, and it was tough. It was impossible, actually. It was impossible to use just one name. And just to give you uh, an idea, this book um, mentions at least 250 birds. So, um, yes, <laughs> so you couldn't change them around. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't go with, for example, adding a footnote, a translator's footnote, every time a bird was mentioned with 250 birds. And I couldn't either use uh, the scientific name because, well, it's not for scientists, it's for lay people. And it doesn't go well with the literary emotional style that the author was after. We had a lot of discussion with scientists along the flyway, along the migratory flyway, in different countries in, in, in the Americas, with the author, of course. And we decided to go for a very um, radical and yet interesting solution. So the author travels from the tip of the south of South America all the way to the Arctic, following these birds. That's the, the migration they do every year, twice per year. <laughs> and so, and she starts in Chile. She starts in the south, very tip, the very southern tip of uh, the Patagonia of, of Chile. And the, the main bird that she talks about, even though she mentions 250 birds, uh, is called the red knot in English. Um, it's a shorebird that spends six months of the whole year in Chile, in the Patagonia of Chile. And, but there, it's not red. It's white and gray. Because another thing migratory birds do is they change their feathers uh, according to the season they are in. They, if they're in the breeding season, they have one color. If they're in the non-breeding season, they have another color. And so there, of course, it wouldn't make sense to call them red because they're white and, and gray. <laughs> so the Chileans don't call them red. They call them, back translated into English, Arctic shorebirds. Because obviously they come from the Arctic. For them, they're, they're coming straight from the Arctic. They're gray and white, so Arctic sounds great. Um, so we decided for the chapters that occur in Chile to call them with the Chilean names. Not only that bird, but all of the companions <laughs> that this bird travels with. So, but then the bird hops over to Argentina after those six months in Chile, in the Patagonia of Argentina, and, um, and they're in their, in their breeding plumage. They're, they're red now. They have a beautiful red breast with brown. So they're not white. They're not gray at all. And so, of course, in Argentina, they don't call them Arctic shorebirds. They call them red shorebird. And so we used, <laughs> oh, I used from then onward the, the Argentine name. And because it was back and forth with these three or four chapters at the beginning, we decided to add an introductory note um, like, an ep, like, a, like a prologue, we didn't call it a prologue, but uh, we called it something like one bird, many names, to explain what we decided to do and uh, why. And it was a way to remain true to the colors of the bird, to remain true to its colors, and, and, and to also connect with the audience in a way that, okay, we're talking the same, the same language. Because, you know, there's, again, this emotional... Uh, purpose in this book. So, and then at the end, we added a long list, like a long glossary uh, with all the regional variation names and the scientific names. 
So that was how we solved this. And it was quite interesting and long, long, long discussions going over for months. (laughs) This is so fascinating. And it's such an interesting um, genre to work in as a translator. And I can definitely see how uh, you you encounter both technical uh, terminology challenges and uh, literary uh, translation challenges. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. It's been a pleasure, and we really look forward to your presentation at the conference. Come over to the to the presentation, and and um, I'll be talking more about resources that I used, and and challenges, poetic challenges, um, and cultural differences too, because yeah. there were tons of cultural yeah. differences. Yeah, I was very very happy to join you and give you a a quick brief bird's view. Yes. <laughs> the process yes thank you so much we really appreciate it thank you thank you both My name is Madalena Sanchez-Zampalo. I am going to be presenting at the American Translators Association Conference in New Orleans on how to use a free project management tool to plan, manage, and grow in your profession. I am a director on the American Translators Board of Directors, and I'm also the chair of the Public Relations Committee. I'm a Spanish and Portuguese to English medical translator, and I also own a small agency called Accessible Translation Solutions. Uh, I blog at madalenazampalo.com on topics related to translation and interpreting as well. So which tool are you going to speak about? I'm going to be talking about Asana. Have you guys used it before or heard of it? I heard of it, but I haven't used it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a really great free tool for managing projects. Um, A lot of people find that it's not that easy to figure out Asana when you first start using it, I've found. Um, So while I don't personally find it complicated, I do see how people would think it's not an amazing tool if they didn't actually know what all it can do. I used it before with a client of mine who required it, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, That's how I came across it in the first place. And then we kind of just let it go because it was only that client who requested it. And then I ended up um, looking for a project management tool again later on that would do more of what we wanted it to do and um, that I could also manage my volunteer projects in. And so I ended up taking a course on how to use Asana and all of the functions and how to organize it to help me run my business and volunteer activities and manage people and create plans with bigger goals in mind. So you can upgrade to a paid version, but honestly, you really don't need to. There are so many workarounds from the paid version that you can do with the free one that the free version is really excellent. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. Exciting. So how does it help you combine uh, working toward larger goals with building plans and managing people? So I love this tool because I can set uh, like a big goal and then I can break it down into smaller, more manageable tasks and goals. I can set deadlines for the smaller tasks, and that helps me to stay on track with everything leading up to the bigger goal. So sometimes things can get put off for a day or so here and there, but truly it's, um, it's helped me to plan projects, both paid ones and non-paid projects, meaning like administrative things or uh, other goals I have in my business that are not related to um, paid client projects, and manage teams of people on several fronts. So I manage my own project managers to the people who who volunteer with me 
on the Public Relations Committee for ATA. And I really can't say enough about this tool. I have a friend who also owns a business, a totally separate business and industry, and she started using it because I was telling her about it. And she's able to manage her team and run her business just using um, this type of project management tool. So it's really one of the best tools I've come across, and I've tried several. So other than breaking up big projects into smaller chunks and setting deadlines and having the tool hold you accountable, what else can it do for work or for volunteer life? So I use it for everything within my business. I use it to organize the blog posts that I'm going to write. I use it to organize all of the client projects that I'm working on or that my team is working on. My project managers are also inside of it on a daily basis. And so whenever something passes within our pipeline from one step to the next, they're able to stay in touch with me about it or ask questions or upload documents we keep track of leads, people to follow up with, um, potential clients. And then also I manage my volunteer activities because there's quite a bit going on within the public relations committee for ATA. I manage my personal blog there where I write about um, translation interpreting related topics. So everything basically that I do for work or sometimes even for personal life, I manage projects within Asana too. I'm also able to add people to my, what Asana calls your organization, which is basically your home base within Asana. You can add people to the organization and add them maybe to only certain projects, which is what I do. Um, So they can see the project that we're collaborating on. They can share files. They can put in links from Dropbox or Google Drive or anything like that. And then we can actually have a conversation about the project. We used to use Slack in my business, which we liked, but honestly, you can do the exact same thing within Asana and directly on the project itself. Um, So we are able to see and set deadlines there. Um, We can change deadlines if we need to. I know when somebody has finished something because they checked it off or um, if, if I send a little note, they can, you know, like the note so I know that they've seen it or if they can respond as well. So I love that there's also an app that you can download for your phone. So if I'm, you know, not in my office, I can communicate on the go or add tasks or send new projects um, whenever I think of them. That sounds perfect. Sounds like exactly something that I need in my life. <laughs> I think everybody should yeah. use it. It doesn't matter if you work with a team or not, honestly. It's, it's a tool that yeah. I'm really excited to present about because one, it's free and two, you can manage so many different types of things and add people to certain projects to where they only see that project. They don't see all your other projects that you're working on because it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I love it. Great. Will you demonstrate how to use it during the session? Yeah, I'm going to try to demonstrate how to use it. I'm going to, for sure, in my presentation, include a lot of screenshots just because I'm not positive how good the Wi-Fi will be in the room where I'm going to be presenting. But I may include or re-record sort of an instructional video that I used for the volunteers on the PR committee whenever I created the um the various projects that we work on. Um, For example, the writers group, the one that writes the articles that we publish once every eight weeks. I created sort of a step-by-step tutorial for how to use it and how we were going to organize the project. So I may do something like that to also show during the um, presentation that probably wouldn't require Wi-Fi, but yes, I do plan to demonstrate. Okay, so you said you took a training Mm-hmm. Is it something that Asana provides or you need to go out and find a separate one? 
So Asana doesn't provide this training. The course that I found, which I can send you the link to if you want for your show notes, is called Asana HQ. And it is somebody who did it completely separately. And she demonstrates how to use the free tool. Because as far as I know, Asana is like most tools where they probably have various tutorials, but you have to go and look up, um, you know, a tutorial for how to do this and a tutorial for how to answer that question. And so this person basically put everything into one place. If I had thought about doing this myself, it's something I would have loved to do. But since it's already out there, I just send that link to anybody who asks me um, about that training. So yeah, it's somebody who's not related to Asana. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Madalena. We can't sure. wait to learn more about it. And I am very curious to check out the tool right away, but I'll still attend your session. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you the link for it. Sure. Yes, thank you. All right. Thank you both. Hi, my name is Jos Zetsche. I'm an English to German translator. And um, I've been writing about language technology for many years. And um, the session that I'm going to present at this year's ATA in New Orleans is called Language Technology Wiki, a place to shape translation and interpreting technology. And I'm particularly excited about the session because I think um, what I am going to talk about is hopefully going to help our industry and particularly freelance translators to really move forward in the way they use translation technology. We are very excited about your session too. And to our listeners, we'll also be linking Yost's website and we'll include the link to the wiki page too in the show notes. So aside from the language technology wiki, what is shaping the translation and interpreting technology in your opinion? Any developments that you'd like to mention? Well, there's a lot of things, I think, that are happening right now. Um, obviously, for translators, machine translation is very high on everyone's mind, what kind of impact it has on our professional lives, how we can use it professionally, whether it's ethical to use it professionally, whether there are other ways to use machine translation aside from the typical post-editing kind of way where you just have data that machine translation suggests to you that you just edit. Those are really big things, I think, for, the, for translators. For interpreters, I think it is probably, I think there is no real term for it yet, but something like machine interpretation on one hand. On the other hand, remote interpreting, I think, is the Thing that has shaped the interpreting world most strongly in the last few two three years or so. Thank you. So in the introduction you mentioned that language technology wiki should help freelance translators and interpreters in particular to participate in shaping translation and interpreting technology. Why did you mention them? Are we, well them or rather us, uh, are we behind the curve? Well we're not behind the curve, I think. I think we're a very important part of shaping and developing te language technology. But I think that traditionally, we have been responding rather than acting and proactively participating in, in the um, development of translation technology. I think it's typical 
that translators um, feel that they are kind of objected to technology. And what I hope to see happening with a number of initiatives, including the Language Technology Wiki, is that translators have the sense that they can actually shape what technology is going to look like and what kind of technology they can use in their translation work. And they can shape that by having this one place where they can come and creatively work on at least imagining technology. I think that if that place really becomes a very active community, it's only logical and natural that developers will come and, and see what's happening and try to implement some of the ideas that are coming up in those discussions. There's a number of places, of course, where you can do that, but there is no place to my mind or to my knowledge where it's completely tool independent. It's, um, you know, a completely um, objective place where there is no commercial interest. You know, there are, of course, places like pros.com or the SDL ideas platform, et cetera, et cetera. But those are different in the sense that they're A, commercial and B, tool dependent. And, and so I think to have a place where you can just really um, not talk about specific technologies, maybe, or not rant about technologies, that's not the point, but to, um, in your everyday work, when you encounter problems with technology or when you have ideas how to use technology more productively, you can share those on this space, on the Language Technology Wiki, and start a conversation with others how those things could really help us. So first, do you feel like enough freelance translators and interpreters would find time? And second, wouldn't it be a little like, so with the cars, I think Henry Ford said that if you listen to the customers like before the cars became a thing, that they would have asked for uh, faster horses. Well, I mean, the first part, will they find time? Well, you know, if they are interested in working more productively and um, saving a lot of time, once those technologies are implemented, they better find time. I mean, it's, you know, I know we're all busy. I'm a freelance translator myself, and I know that we are, you know, bombarded with work and, and, and all that. But I just have a hard time believing that we cannot find 10 minutes, 15 minutes a week or something to go to a place where we can really talk about um, things that might have a true and meaningful impact on the way we work. We find plenty of time to be in Facebook and then on Twitter and, and wherever. And those sometimes are productive, but very often are not productive. Um, this could be a really productive way. So I think that that question, whether we find time, is sort of not really something that I would take completely serious if somebody would ask me that. Well, okay, okay. What would make us care enough to make time? I guess is a better way to put it. Well, <laughs> no, no, I think, I think, so you have to believe that technology can help you. I mean, if you are somebody who says technology will never be able to help me, well, then you shouldn't come to this place. I mean, you shouldn't then, but I think that if you are a person who would say that, 
then I think that you maybe should be looking at what kind of work you're doing, how you're working. Um, of course, you are using technology today. And to what extent, you know, that, that is um, up to you. And, but there is no translator today who is not using technology, I mean, for sure. And I think there is very few translators who, today who would say, I much rather translate with paper and pencil than um, with a computer. And you know, if you are one of those, then again, maybe this might not be the right place for you, but you, if, you, if you are using your computer to, to work, you're using technology, and um, clearly you would prefer, I believe, to be more productive in that. Um, and, and if that is so, then you should become part of the discussion. I mean, I, there is no translator, I think, who is, has not complained about translation, translation technology, and rightly so. There's lots of stuff in translation technology, and there's a wide range of translation technologies, and of course, I'm always in, including interpreting technologies, that, um, that is not great. And, and, and so if we can come together and try to make it just a little bit better, or a whole lot better, or actually come up with a whole new paradigm how to use technology and how to have technology developed, how awesome would that be? And that's the point of this site and this endeavor, I think. Great. Thank you so much, Jos. Could you tell us a little bit about how this site came to be? Yeah, it's actually a really cool story, I think. So I met with the former president of, of FIT, um, Henry Leo, um, who um, you know now is, is not the president anymore, but he he was president I think for two or for four years at Fit, and he was very very active, and he traveled a lot to conferences and gave a lot of talks. And I met with him at the ATA conference two years ago, and we chatted, and we said, you know, what what is really needed, and what can we really do to make translation technology develop in a positive manner and in the right way. And we said, you know, let's all, let's go back to, you know, to our homes and let's continue to think about it. And we did continue to think about it. And we came up with this idea of a place where people come together, the, the wiki. But then rather than us or me or whoever doing something with that, um, I, I did not have the time at, at this particular point to devote much to this. I just kind of put out a call for people who um, would like to work on this. And a lot of people actually came up. So we have about 10 people or so who worked on this collaboratively. You can find all their names and their affiliations on the wiki's page, on the wiki site. And I think it's, I love the story because there was somebody who had an idea in collaboration with someone else who then said, can somebody do this? And a whole bunch of people showed up and did it. And so, you know, even in the very genesis of the site, I think we see this collaborative effort. And I hope that this will continue to be shown in what the site actually comes up with and how technology, language technology will be brought forward and will be made better. So during the conference or during your session, rather, do you plan to be asking the attendees for their input? Or if they are interested, even before the conference, is there a way to jump in at the Language Technology Wiki website? 
Absolutely. So, so yes and yes. Um, yes, there is a way to, you know, it's, it's a life site. It's been live for a few months and it's entirely possible. And I urge you to go to it right now and add your ideas and, and respond to ideas that have already been posted there. And at the session itself, it, it's supposed to be a really interactive session where I, together with the people who come, will look at the structure of the site, will see whether the structure of the site makes sense the way it is presented, and then come up with um, new ideas, maybe uh, how, to, how to enhance the structure, but if not the structure, then at least how to add new topics, how to add new flesh, how to, what to do to make this work, and actually adding some new ideas of what we should add to the site. I'm not sure whether I'm going to have internet access at the session. If I do, then we can actually add stuff to the site as we speak. If not, I will just collect um, things and then add it, you know, in my room in the evening uh, at the conference. So I hope that the conference will really kickstart this. I mean, it's, so it's, it's already there. It just has to be sort of get a little bit of inertia to move it forward. And I think that the session might, might just do that. So I'm very hopeful for it. And hey, and I see you at the session, right? Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the third episode.